Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, as we hear this difficult word of your punishment of Jerusalem in your anger, we pray in your mercy we will be able to hear this word as your word and it would teach us of your will, more it would teach us of our Lord Jesus in whom we can find shelter from your just wrath. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you. I will do to you what I've never done before and will never do again. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will be avenged. Confronting words for Ezekiel's first hearers and confronting words for us on a Sunday morning or any time for talk of God's anger is always difficult. It's jarring culturally. I mean, we talk of people exploding in anger or losing it. Saying is seen as impulsive, irrational, unhelpful and destructive. It's something you have to go to courses to learn how to manage. Oh, and anger is theologically uncomfortable because we like to think of God as gracious, loving and forgiving, but an angry God seems overwhelmingly hostile. And talk of anger can also be personally distressing if you have been the victim of another's rages. Sorry. So how should we respond to Ezekiel 5? Ignore it, dismiss it, repudiate it, say it's sub-Christian and contrast the angry God of the Old Testament with the loving God of the New? Or should we hear it for what it says it is, the word of the Lord? For that is what it repeatedly claims to be. <coughs> verse 5 and repeated in verses 7 and 8, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Verse 13, verse 15, verse 17, I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel's clear. Called by God to speak the word of God, that word is what we are now hearing. And the New Testament encourages us to hear it as the word of God. Prophecy, says Peter in 2 Peter 1, does not come from the prophet's own interpretation of things, but from God, given by his spirit. We should hear this chapter as it claims to be, the word of God. And we should remember that what troubles us, God's anger against sin, is not just an Old Testament idea. It's part of the gospel. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus is the one who saves us from the wrath to come. And Paul in Romans says that the human problem is that God's wrath, his anger, is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who by their wickedness suppress the truth about God to worship idols. And he goes on to say that by our stubborn and unrepentant hearts, we are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. The anger of God, the wrath of God, is an issue for us all. So let's take Ezekiel 5 seriously so that we can learn this morning the cause of God's anger, the character of God's anger, the effect of God's anger. 
And let's do that so that we can think rightly about our God and his gospel more so that you can feel both the reality and the rightness of God's anger and act on it by fleeing to the only one who can shelter us from God's just anger, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Chapters uh, 4 and 5 of Ezekiel uh, go uh, together. In chapter 4 uh, through to 5, verse 4, uh, we have Ezekiel performing four sign acts at God's command, all focused on Jerusalem. Uh, these sign acts portrayed the coming siege of Jerusalem, the sin that had brought them to that point, the deprivation they would experience during that siege with Ezekiel eating a loaf made of the dregs of grain cooked on cow dung day after day. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, With Ezekiel's wild sword-wielding, he is picturing what will happen to the inhabitants of Jerusalem when the siege ends. Now, these signs have been given to engage Ezekiel's fellow exiles with a message they did not want to believe, engage to persuade the watchers that this is what the Lord would do to help them feel its reality. Having acted out these scenes for just over a year, Ezekiel's tongue is now loosened and in verses 5 to 15 he is given the word of the Lord that explains and makes clear the meaning of these actions. Ezekiel in these verses is speaking of Jerusalem but he's not speaking, remember, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's speaking to the Jews who, like him, are now in exile far from Judah and Jerusalem. But they were a people living with a false hope that they would one day return to Jerusalem because Jerusalem would always be there. You see, for them, Jerusalem was the place the Lord had chosen, in the words of Deuteronomy, to put his name, a place he had associated with himself, with his rule over his people. The Lord's temple was there, and that was thought of as his palace, with the Holy of Holies as his throne room. For his own sake, for his reputation, the Lord, they thought, had to be committed to Jerusalem. Its destruction was unthinkable. And that was, in a sense, what the Psalms they sang also celebrated. Consider just Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion, another name for part of Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Or Psalm 48, speaking of Jerusalem, God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. For the exiles, no matter how the inhabitants of Jerusalem might behave, if the Lord was God, then Jerusalem would always be there for them. So at the beginning of his message, the Lord says, verse 5, that he knows of Jerusalem's special position. But for him, that does not make Jerusalem inviolable, just more guilty, more certain of destruction. This is what the sovereign Lord says, this is Jerusalem which I have set in the centre of the nations with countries all around her. Jerusalem's special position at the centre of the nations is because of the Lord's choice and actions. He has set her there. And she's not just the centre geographically of her neighbours. The Lord has placed her at the centre of his plans for the nations 
for the entire world. So Isaiah, speaking a hundred years before, it said that the mountain of the Lord's temple would be established as the highest of all mountains and all the nations will stream to it, that the law of the Lord would go forth from Zion to all the nations. And in the Psalms, Jerusalem is seen to be the seat of the promised great king who would rule the world. It's at the centre of God's plans. But the Lord's choice of Jerusalem makes Jerusalem's behaviour, the behaviour of those living there, even more troubling. For in their behaviour, they have repudiated their relationship with the Lord, whose choice and promises they were seeking to rely on. Verse 6, yet in her wickedness she has rebelled against, yet in her wickedness she has rebelled against uh, my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. This is the cause of God's anger. They've rebelled against the Lord's laws and decrees, rejected them. Now, the laws and decrees is a phrase used repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy to speak of the content of the covenant Israel made with the Lord at Sinai and then renewed on the plains of Moab as recorded in Deuteronomy before they entered the promised land. Now, that covenant was a formal commitment between the Lord and the people of Israel where the Lord committed to be their God and King and Israel committed to be his people, a people who would trust him and live according to his laws and his decrees. That covenant, in a sense, was the constitution that governed their national life. It was the foundation of Israel's identity. Ezekiel's use of the phrase laws and decrees tells us that all that is said of the Lord's dealings with Jerusalem in Ezekiel 5 is said in the light of that covenant. And another picture of the kind of commitment involved in the covenant that helps us understand uh, what's going on, another another picture of the kind of commitment involved in the covenant that the prophets use is marriage. So in the covenant there's an expectation of exclusive loyalty of one to the other and of each party keeping the promises that they have freely made. But Israel, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, have chosen to live as if that covenant, that commitment did not bind them. Verse 7, you have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. (coughs) Unruly has the sense of riotous, an insolent rejection of God. The Israelites are refusing to acknowledge the Lord as their king and have their behaviour governed by their relationship with him, by his law, and instead they were doing whatever they wanted. Now, that summary of their disobedience as not keeping God's laws and decrees is actually pretty dry, isn't it? But examples of the behaviour that resulted are given by Ezekiel in chapter 22. Uh, you might like to look it up, Ezekiel 22.7 there. <laughs> there in Jerusalem, says the prophet, you have treated father and mother with contempt. You have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. Oh, in you are slanderers who are bent on shedding blood. In you, one man commits a detestable offence with his neighbour's wife, another shamefully defiles his daughter-in-law, another violates his sister. 
In you are people who accept bribes to shed blood. You take interest and make profit from the poor. You extort gain from your neighbour. To reject God's laws and decrees was not pretty. Their behaviour was selfish, cruel and wicked. In fact, the Lord says Israel has behaved more wickedly than the surrounding pagan nations. And that's not just because they were rejecting a better revelation of God. No, they did not even meet, verse 7, the standards of those nations. Now, is that possible, you think, for people who say they're God's people who are meant to be committed to his standards? Is it possible for them to be worse than their pagan neighbours? You bet it is. Yes, think clerical child abuse. Think preachers exploiting people's needs and vulnerabilities say they're longing for healing to enrich themselves. And think of how offensive that is to the righteous God. Well, having charged them with breaking the covenant, the Lord then focuses in verses 9 and 11 on what the NIV translates as uh, their detestable idols and their detestable practices, which in the original is the word used, the word which is often translated as abomination. Now, Ezekiel will expand in chapter 8, but the word abomination actually again takes us to the covenant because it's the word that's commonly used in Deuteronomy for idolatry. And in Deuteronomy, idolatry is the sin the Lord specifically and repeatedly says would bring his wrath upon them. There are some references in the handout, but just one example. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And he goes on in Deuteronomy 4 and says, After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call heavens, the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land. Idolatry provokes the, Lord's to, the Lord to anger because it is contempt of the living God. It is spiritual adultery. It is abandoning the living Lord for lifeless fictions. And in verse 11, we read that Israel had even brought their idolatry into the Lord's sanctuary. And that's like a bloke bringing his cheap prostitute into the marital bedroom in the presence of his wife. Seeing the cause of God's anger in Israel's rejection of the covenant, in their spiritual adultery, helps us see the character of God's anger. You see, God's anger is not arbitrary. In his response to Israel's sin, God is doing exactly what he said he would do in the covenant. He is keeping his solemn commitment, being faithful to his vow. In both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, at the end of the covenant agreement, both the blessings of keeping that covenant and the curses, the punishments for breaking that covenant have been clearly set out. Let me read you a sample of those curses from the end of Leviticus. Leviticus 26, if in spite of these things, 
You do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile towards me. And that is by worshipping idols and rejecting God's laws and decrees. I myself will be hostile towards you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you and you'll be given into the enemy's hands when I cut off your supply of bread. Or going on in that chapter, if they still don't repent, well, I will be hostile in my anger towards you and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. Verse 29, you will eat the flesh of your sons and your daughters. Oh, verse 31, I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight. I will myself lay waste the land. Rather than being arbitrary in these pronouncements by Ezekiel, in bringing these judgments on his sinful people, the Lord is being righteous. That is, he is doing exactly what he committed himself to do in the covenant. Righteousness for both the Lord and Israel was keeping the covenant, conforming to the established and agreed behaviours, the commitments made by each party to the covenant. Israel had abandoned theirs, but the Lord was keeping his And knowing the covenant also helps us understand some of the phrases that we might have found particularly uncomfortable in Ezekiel 5. So, for example, uh, verse 13, when I've spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. God had said idolatry would provoke his anger. Now, in the face of Israel's persistent idolatry, I guess, and I suppose this is what many would want him to do, well, I guess the Lord could have said it doesn't matter that he chose to be indifferent. But his pronouncement of judgments to be carried out in his anger actually shows that he is not, he is never indifferent. He speaks, he says, in his zeal or jealousy or better, in his passion. You see, the Lord's not some impassive judge. He is and always is passionately committed to his people and to his relationship with his people to protect and preserve it. Dumb idols can be relied on to be impassive and indifferent, but the Lord is the living God who has embraced his people with a gracious salvation And like a good husband, he will not stand by and see the relationship ignored and trashed, see what rightly belongs to him given to another. He acts in his passion. And again, in verse 11, when the Lord says, I will not look on you with pity or spare you, the Lord is saying that he will judge impartially by the standards of the covenant, not be swayed by sentiment or favouritism. You see, that phrase was used again in Deuteronomy by the Lord when instructing the human judges of the covenant about executing sentences for idolatry or murder or false witnesses, crimes so serious that they would destroy the covenant people. There in Deuteronomy 13, do not yield to them or listen to them, show them no pity, do not spare them. Human judges were called on by the Lord to judge righteously in conformity 
with the covenant and the law will judge righteously. The sentence of the law of the covenant will be carried out impartially on crimes so serious that they would destroy the Lord's people. The Lord's anger is the passionate commitment of the Lord to his righteousness, to maintaining what he has committed himself to in his relationship with his people, to vindicating in that his holy name, his reputation, who he is, and his word. And his anger burns until all that does not conform to his righteousness is removed. And in his response, the Lord's just anger works a proportionate punishment. It's not over-the-top disproportionate. The Lord commits himself, as we heard in chapter 7, to judge Israel according to their conduct. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. God's justice is retributive, giving to people what they deserve for what they have done. And the Lord's anger is not impulsive. He's not flying off the handle at a moment's notice for some small infringement because he's under stress. He has been incredibly patient with Israel's provocation, their persistent disobedience. Ezekiel 4, I have assigned to you the same number of days, he says to Ezekiel, as as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. 390 days for 390 years of sin. That takes the beginning date of this reckoning of sin back to the reign of Solomon. Even though he built the temple, it was Solomon whose heart says kings turned away from the Lord and introduced into Israel's life many gods for his many wives. And over those 390 years, the Lord had sent many prophets to his people to turn them back to him, to warn them of the judgment their idolatry and wickedness would bring, reminding them of the covenant. But they had not heeded them. 390 years of opportunity to repent, to recommit to the covenant, to find forgiveness. Now that is patience. The Lord's anger is not arbitrary but righteous, doing exactly what he said he would do. It is proportionate and just, giving people what they deserve, and it is expressed after waiting with great patience for repentance, for people to turn back to him. But as the word anger itself suggests, it is terrifying in its expression. Uh, Open Ezekiel 5 again and listen to what it is for the Lord to express his just anger, to spend his wrath on a rebellious people. Verse 9, Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore in your midst parents will eat their children and children will eat their parents. I will inflict punishment on you. It's horrifying, isn't it? but it describes the effect of the hunger brought on by both ancient and modern sieges, sieges that God warned against in the covenant curses in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Verse 12, A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls and a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Unlike Ezekiel shaving in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, where a few hairs were left, here no remnant is mentioned. And the points that all are caught up 
in the judgment, and there will be no escape for any from God's wrath. Verse 14, I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with stinging rebuke. Experiencing the Lord's wrath will bring shame because their pride in which they have defied God will be exposed as empty and those surrounding them will see how much and how well deserved their punishment is. And then verse 16, when I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. God's just anger is relentless and deadly. In his quiver are famine and wild beasts, plague and the sword, and many ways of using them. And we who have been humbled by virus know how easily God can destroy with his arrows prosperity, health, security and life itself. And as he says in Ezekiel in Ezekiel 5 verse 8, I myself against you and that's what we see in Ezekiel 5 it is a terrible thing to have the living just almighty passionate God against you he does not tire in executing his righteous judgments that restore his covenant and vindicate his word and his name his anger stops verse 13 only when it is spent his anger ceases only when it achieves its goal removing the cause of anger, especially idolatry, justly punishing the unrighteous, restoring order to the covenant. There's no escape from his anger and God's anger is real and right. We should hear this word and believe it. You see, Israel's great problem was that they did not believe that God would do exactly what he had said he would do. They set one part of his word, the promise of protection, against another, the warning against disobedience and idolatry. And we should not make the same mistake. And we should recognise in God's treatment of his people that he expects his people to live as his people, to live in conformity with his revealed will and character. The people of God in Ezekiel's day had come to think had come to think that you could enjoy the protections the benefits the privileges of relationship with God while rebelling against God living making their own rules about what's right and wrong doing whatever they pleased now Ezekiel blows that false hope out of the water neither they nor we can expect to be protected by the living God, expect to enjoy his favour while we are treating him as just another dumb idol, treating with contempt. And that's what you do when you think you can sin safely. You're acting as if God does not see, has not spoken and cannot do what he says. 
Now, the New Testament warns us against that presumption repeatedly. And hearing God's judgment, feeling in these words of Ezekiel God's passion for his people to be his people, his anger against those who despise him. Well, we should take to heart those warnings. We are warned, for example, in Ephesians 5 that no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God And that's a warning repeated in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 10 and many places. Oh, there are other warnings. We're warned against idolatry. We're warned against embracing a false human-made gospel. Oh, yes, we are warned against unforgiveness. And we should take those warnings to heart. So examine yourself. Make sure you're not saying you believe in Jesus, you confess him as Lord, but... uh, then choosing to do what he forbids and thinking you'll be safe. Safe because oh, sometime in the past you made a decision or you got baptised or oh, maybe you even go to church regularly. God will do what he says. And let me talk now to two groups of people I think are particularly at risk of this sin of presumption. Firstly, there are those of us who have grown up in Christian homes. Now because of that You may never have done anything really bad. You may not be the kid who's got drunk or slept around or cheated at school. In fact, because of that, you're probably convinced you are so much better than others. And so those little sins, resentment of your parents, self-righteous condemnation of others, those outbursts of anger, that gossip, those little lies, you think, Oh, I'm so good compared to others. They can be overlooked. <laughs> They're kind of allowed to me, a kind of dispensation. Well, there are actually no little sins. And the danger is that growing up in a Christian home is actually only teaching you to be indifferent to the sins of your heart. <laughs> that you're thinking you can still be okay because you're better than others. Why are you doing what Jesus says you shouldn't? Jesus calls you to repent. And secondly, there are those who think that their circumstances are so tough that what God calls for from all his children, what God commands us to do in his love for us, well, he will make an exception for you. You've been hurt so badly, you can nurse your bitterness. Life's so stressful, you've got a right to angry words. You're under so much pressure, even as a Christian leader, that that sexual immorality that releases that pressure, God will overlook that. No, he won't. God doesn't make exceptions. He commands us for his good and he expects us to trust him and do his will. Don't presume. God is calling you to repent. But this is not just a warning for those who say they are believers. God's judgment on Jerusalem, his visiting, his anger upon them was meant to be, verse 15, an object lesson to the surrounding nations. You see, the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus, is the creator of all. He's not just the God of the Jews and not just the God of Christians. He is your God, whether you believe in him or not. 
He is the one who's given you life and sustains your life and gives you all good things. And he is the one who has a right to your trust and worship. His law, the rules of his covenant, they're an expression of his character. It tells you the behaviours that cannot have a place in the presence of the God who is the judge of the living and the dead. And his word tells you that he hates idolatry, that dishonours him and demeans you. He hates you giving your loyalty, trust, worship to created things, whether that's money or power or pleasure or some so-called God or even to yourself. And it's right for him to be angry at your sin, your indifference to or rebellion against him, right for him to remove wickedness and restore order to his creation. God's just anger at your sin, his holy, passionate, inescapable, effective anger is part of the Christian message. And the gospel warns us of God's just anger so that we will turn away from our sin and turn back to the living God. Now, Ezekiel was speaking to a group of people who did not listen or respond to God's warnings because they had a false hope. But their experience tells us that false hopes are dangerous because Jerusalem was destroyed. False hopes stop you from acting when you should, just like a quack cure can stop you from seeking the right treatment when you need it. But the book of Ezekiel also tells us that God exposes their false hope to give them a real and substantial hope. So are you someone who's living with a false hope, who needs to find a real hope? Maybe you're a believer in Jesus who's been living in presumptuous sin, thinking God will overlook it. Or maybe you're someone who's not yet a believer and, well, you thought that God was indifferent, uninvolved, or that God would not judge. And now God's word is telling you that he's actually passionately serious about righteousness. And he acts in judgment to remove all unrighteousness from his presence. The good news of the same gospel that declares God's judgment on sin of his righteous anger at our rebellion is that he has sent Jesus, his son, to save us from that anger. You see, what Jesus was doing on the cross was dying for sin, for your sin. (coughs) In particular, Jesus on the cross was dealing with God's holy wrath against sin, your sin. This is what Jesus was doing. This is what Jesus knew he was doing when he considered his death. On the night before he died, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now the cup is an Old Testament picture of experiencing God's wrath. In Isaiah it says, Rise up, Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hands of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And in Jeremiah it says, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. On the cross, Jesus was draining that cup so that you and I would not drink it. The gospel says that God wonderfully spends his just anger on himself, on the Son of God. And by faith in the gospel that Christ has died for our sins and risen again, 
we're actually joined to Christ by his spirit, joined to him and his cross and rising. We die with him on that cross so that we now have no judgment to face, no just anger to experience and we rise with him to live now at peace with God so that by faith in Jesus we can say with Paul that the God who is against our sin is actually now for us. If God is for us, he writes, who can be against us? So if you've been living with a false hope, find a real hope in the God who is angry at your sin but loves you enough to give his son to bring you from being his enemy to being with to being one of his loved children, to bring you from having him against you to having him for you through the death of his son. If you're not yet a believer, no, God has raised Jesus who died from the cross. He's raised him with authority to judge and forgive. And if God has convicted you of the reality of his judgment, if you now feel his anger at your despising and disobeying him, well, you know God is real. So call out to Jesus and ask for forgiveness to be given you life and he will you. If you're not a believer and hearing of a God who is just and active to carry out his judgments has challenged you, find out more about him by finding out more about Jesus. You can do that on our web. You can let us know you want to know more about Jesus. And if you're a believer who's been living presumptuously with a false hope, well, there is a real hope even for you. Jesus' death, it says, is sufficient to cover over the offence of all our sins, even our proud contempt of our Saviour that would continue with the very sins that put him on the cross. He can forgive your sin and he will. So stop excusing your sin and confess it to the Lord and turn from it and ask forgiveness But know that to believe in Jesus is to be joined to him and to be united to Christ is to live for Christ by living like Christ. You've got to finish with your sin and put it to death and if you need help, seek his help to do it. And for the rest of us, well, we have to keep on remembering, don't we, that our only hope is that Jesus is the one who saves us from the wrath to come so that we persevere in Christ. Only in him can you and I find shelter from the fiery storm of judgment, from the day of wrath. So persevere in him and persevere in living the godly life he calls you to and remember God's wrath is real, righteous, not arbitrary, justly proportionate, Oh not impulsive, but his patience will run out. The world's problem, your neighbour's problem, is God's just anger against their rebellion against him. Now, they may not want to hear, but the gospel says the day of wrath is coming and unless the sun has drained the cup for them, they must drink the cup of God's wrath for themselves. So don't become timid or complacent or tired. Pray and speak and work together so that your neighbours hear the gospel of the Son who alone can save them 
and us from the wrath to come. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, help us hear your word. Help us not to try and hide from your wrath in false hopes, in thinking you're inactive or in thinking you don't care about sin or in thinking our sin is not serious. Convict us of the reality of our rebellion and of your just response to it. And we pray, turn our hearts to trust your son Jesus, that in his death he's covered over the offence of our sin, that he's made himself a sacrifice to rescue us from your just wrath, from the curse of your law forever. Help us to trust him, to persevere in him, and to speak of him as he is, the only saviour of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.